This episode is proudly brought to you by Ringers Western, an Australian brand merging the country and city through the style, quality and comfort of their clothing and boots. Ringers Western, sticking together. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, and this is From the Saddle. You might know him as one half of Double Dan, a showman skilled at entertaining audiences of horse lovers and ordinary folk alike. He's also an author, a farrier, and a renowned horse trainer and breaker. So, how did Dan Steers, a kid from the suburbs of Perth, who only discovered horse riding through the local PCYC, land on the international stage? As always, it's never all fame and fortune like it may seem. While there were significant highs, there were some mighty lows. Join me for this in-depth episode as I learn about the hustle and hard work, the gambles and sacrifices it has taken. From the saddle. From the saddle. Hi, Dan. How are you going? Oh, I'm great. Thank you. That's good. Thank you so much for joining me. I know our listeners will be excited to hear your story. Now, Dan, most of the nation knows you as one half of Double Dan, but let's discover Dan Steers. Can you tell me a bit about your childhood and what that looked like? Well, yeah, I can. It's it's a little bit different than probably most and certainly um, in the horse world anyway and, and certainly different to the other Dans. Um, I, I actually grew up in the suburbs of, of Perth and, and uh, didn't really have any interaction with any horses or anything like that. Um, as a kid, and I played plenty of team sports and uh, and also like sort of skateboarding and, and then surfing as well. And it was more just a bit by chance that I sort of stumbled across horses like in my uh, early teens that, that probably changed to a, a quite a dramatic lifestyle change and certainly the direction of my, my life changed quite um, dramatically at that point. Yeah, okay. So tell me, how did you get struck with the bug? Um, yeah, so by chance, actually, we were, we were away for a, um, a, a school camp in, in the southwest of, of, of WA, which is about uh, a little town called Harvey, which is about, oh, uh, I guess, an hour and a half to two hours from, from Perth City. And, and a part of this was like an adventure camp for kids. And it was just a police and citizens youth club type deal and, and had everything from you know, high ropes, sort of low ropes and abseiling and rock climbing and, you know, rafting and, you know, basketball and football and, and all these activities. And, and one of the activities that we also had to do was um, trail riding. And I just couldn't believe that, you know, you could control such a large animal. And I remember at the time sort of steering the horse out of the group and going around a tree and then slipping back into my line and then staying there for a little while and then thinking, I wonder if I can go around this tree up here and I'll go around another tree, do a little circle and then slip back into line. And and I just really uh, enjoyed that interaction. And, and like I said, it was really by chance. It wasn't that I was, you know, a young kid that sort of grew up thinking about horses and nagging my parents to get a horse or to go to a trail rider um, facility or, you know, get lessons or anything like that. It was only because of that one moment and, and I remember it so clearly um, that I just, just enjoyed it and I, and I couldn't believe you could have that much fun and and, um, and really I was sort of bitten from the bug from that point on because I'd, I'd do these massive rise trots and, you know, my elbows were swinging and I remember my step my stepmom saying to me that she was going to 
stitch my elbows of my shirt to, to the to the sides of my shirt so I couldn't leave my elbows. And so everything from that point just I just surrendered everything and just um, thought about horses all the time. So Dan, you quit school at fifteen. Tell me about that. Yeah, so in, in WA, um, that's year 10, and that's the minimum age you could do it. I wanted to stick with the horses, and about the only apprenticeship you could get with horses was, was your farrier apprenticeship. Yeah. So, I, I, again, it wasn't something that I was like, hey, I want to be a farrier. Um, I saw it a means to an end. So I, I was lucky enough to um, meet a master farrier, Pete Weber, who was also into natural horsemanship and, you know, he'd broken in uh, a lot of thoroughbreds and showed in Western and cow sports and, you know, he was a real sort of uh, jack-of-all-trades when it comes to horses, um, being on the station or born on the station. And so he would would, uh, shoe horses in the morning and then he would train horses in the afternoon. So it was really ideal for me. Um, And then we had to convince him. He didn't want an apprentice at all. And um, he just said, you're going to slow me down and, you know, take time and cost money. Yeah. And so, um, and also I had no transportation. Uh, so I was going to have to move in with him and his family, which, which again, he saw as a bit of an inconvenience. Um, so he basically he told told my dad that if, if we're going to do this, that I would have to, you know, someone was going to have to pay my board to live in the house and, and I wouldn't be getting paid any money for the apprenticeship. And, um, and I, I still agreed to it. My dad wouldn't agree to it. So then I had to go to my mum, who, who um, if you can picture it, has got nothing to do with horses and lives in the city, to let me do it and that also she would have to pay for the board. Hard sell. Yeah, it was a hard sell. So she agreed to it and um, and she paid the board while I while I lived there. And, um, and then, yeah, then I was just basically... 24-7, just hanging off the side of Pete Weber, just wanting to – I was just like a, a sponge, you know. Anything he said was gospel. Um, I knew nothing about horses. So whatever anyone said was like there was no – there wasn't right or wrong. It was just right. The uh, homestead to where the horses were was probably, you know, a bit over a kilometre. So I'd get on the push bike in the cold mornings and I'd ride down there to the stables and then I'd have to muck out the two or three horses that would be in the stables, feed, you know, probably a dozen horses, tidy up around the place and then get back on the push bike and ride back to the homestead. And then in the shed there, um, I would, would clean, you know, horseshoes by, by hand. Like he wanted all these um, new horseshoes would, would get buffed and polished, but Nowadays, and even back then, you'd do it with grinders, but he believed to, to get my skill set to be able to handle the rasp. So I'd get, uh, I think it was two sets at the time. I'd have to rasp them all up on the vice and clean them up, get them ready for the, for the day, and then I'd come in and have breakfast with the family. And and um, and then he would take the kids to school, and his wife, would she would have gone off and started work, and as soon as the kids were at school, we'd be off shoeing horses and um, would shoe to about lunchtime, then would come home and uh, work horses. But often he'd come home and have lunch. While he was eating lunch, he'd put on a training video and at the time he was watching a lot of the John Lyons method. So I, so I became pretty um, pretty good student of the, of the Lyons method. But uh, Pete would always fall asleep watching him. And so I'd be watching this video staring at Pete, hoping he'd wake up any minute because all I wanted to do was, was go down and work horses. Did you, at like 15, did you ever think, oh, crap, I've made the wrong decision here. I should be at school because that's an easy gig? Never. No, I um, it, it never once crossed my mind. I remember people telling me, and even Pete Weber told me, you know, you know, people, you'll you'll think back at your school time and you'll you'll realise how good you had it and um, how lucky, you know, it is to, to be able to go to school and, and, you know, it is probably the easiest time of your life and you should just enjoy it. 
but whether I wasn't mature enough at the time to think like that, um, I never, yeah, I, I never had any regrets, that's for sure. I, I always enjoyed what I did. But in saying that, I certainly talk a lot differently to younger generations or younger kids now, you know, whether yeah. we, we, you know, we get, we, we've done uh, school talks, um, pony club talks, you know, youth camps, that sort of stuff, but both Dan and I, um, both here in Australia and in America actually. And, and, um, I, I definitely sing a different tune and, and I also tell them what, what I sort of believe I, I should have got, um, the advice when I was at school, which is you're stuck there anyway. So you might as well make the most of it and, yeah. you know, put the, put the hard work in. I was really fortunate. Both Pete and his wife, Steph, um, just looked after me like I was one of them. And, um, and, and certainly, after moving out and and I, and I went across to the east coast and and, and took on a uh, a job with Corey Holden, it, that was probably the first step into the real world. Was at that point, you know, up until then I was I was hanging out. It's even I was it wasn't family. It just felt like family, and it wasn't until that that point that I went across to Corey's that um, I realised, you know, I'm I'm out in the real world, and it was a hell of an introduction from probably just. Even Pete Weber, he was he was still a really sort of humbled and relaxed sort of character. You know, he, he would he would sort of be pretty cruisy and he never worked too hard. And I started riding, I think we, we were doing sort of oh, most days we're working fourteen hour days, probably riding anywhere from ten to twelve hours. And um, Corey had about fifty, sixty horses in work at that point. And about day three, when when we when we got back to that um, little cabin that, that me and Dave had, I took off my jeans and I just had no skin left on, on the inside of my legs. Oh. And just having a shower um, was brutal. And and I remember telling my mum that you know my muscles and stuff were pretty sore. And and she she sent over uh, some of that sort of tiger balm. Oh and, yeah, no. And, and I sort of I went to rub that in, not thinking about. The skin oh. and it started. It started burning, and I had a little bit on my hands, and and I got some near my groin. Oh and, no, Dan! Uh, <laughs> and and Dave, and Dave thought it was the funniest thing you'd ever seen. I'm in I'm in there trying to in the shower, putting cold water on. Everything oh, was burning. No. Uh, I've never touched the stuff since. Never touched tiger bum <laughs> since. I'm like cringing, and my head is in my hands. I just oh no way. Well, I was. It was like it, it was on fire. So how long were you with Corey for? So I was with Corey for about six months um, and then I went home for Christmas. And while I was home, um, that's where I sort of, uh, I guess, uh, PM, who's now my wife, at the point there, we'd sort of known each other and, and we'd sort of, I guess, started sort of seeing each other over that Christmas break. And, and then I went back to, to Corey's in the new year. And when I went back to Corey's, I was sort of missing WA a little bit. And then um, Corey sort of let me know that, He'd taken a job um, in the States for, for Bar H and he was going to leave um, after the futurity. So you finished up at Corey, then you moved back to WA. Yeah, so then from there, we yeah, we went back to WA and, and Pierre's dad, um, who I met Pierre and, and a dad while I was doing my barrier apprenticeship. Um, that was sort of Pete Weber's big, big client that, you know, he'd go there once a week and, you know, maybe trim 20 horses and, and, uh, and that was his sort of, you know, bread and butter a bit. And, um, we would go there and, and, and Pete's, Pete's, oh, sorry, um, Pierre's dad, Kent, he, he was fanatical on Smoko was at 10, 10 o'clock in the office, you know, and so you'd just bounce tools and you'd go there and that's sort of the first time I, I got to lay eyes on Pierre. 
um, was it was a smoker when she would have been there for say school holidays, and uh, and I saw her and and Kent's wife at the time, which is which is essentially Pierce's stepmom, she was significantly younger, and I remember telling Pete Weber when we got in the car, I said, I said, oh, I really really like the look of you know Kent's younger daughter. And um, you know, Pete said, "Which one?" And I said, "Oh, you know, not not the girl that was sitting next to Kent, and the other one." He said, "No, that's his oldest daughter." And I kept saying, "No, Pete, no, not the older daughter, the younger daughter." And then he had to explain to me that that was actually not um, <laughs> his daughter; that was his that was his wife. Which I'm lucky I didn't bring that up there, um, or I didn't say, "Oh, she was really good looking," because that would have been awkward as well. And uh, when I when I was going to come back to WA. His dad offered me a, a job on the thoroughbred start to help him out, which was just um, really convenient, I guess. It gave me a good opportunity not only to obviously you know, come back to WA and and um, start my relationship with Pia, but also a lot of opportunity to practice with, with um, so many horses to, to work without you know needing to to go out there and you know hang your shingle out, so to speak, and and tell everybody you're a horse breaker. Um, it was a way that I could learn and he was a great horseman and followed sort of Ray Hunt and then Paparelli and, and so he was also all about the, the horse um, which you know, allowed me to sort of, yeah, I guess, you know, work on my technique. So was it around this time, Dan, that you had some serious falls? I um, took a job uh, managing a, a, a farm, about 10,000 acres, really close to Perth City. It was quite unique. It was actually owned by um, the government and it was, you know, set for development, but they were just sort of, you know, sitting on it, land banking it, so to speak, and that was when I had probably the first of my serious accidents. So I can't even remember again how long we'd been based down there for, but um, I was picking up a, a couple of breakers to, to bring back to that property. Um, and, um, and I was, I was, it was, it was actually the people that I was, was managing that property for. Is that another farm that they own? And, um, you know, a bunch of ladies had been handling these horses and, you know, I, I, I took it a bit cheap and, and I, instead of catching one and leading it to the yard and then going back and catching the other one, I decided to catch both of them and I'd lead them both back. And I had to get them across this irrigation drain that um, had like a cement causeway or cement bridge, as you say. Mm-hmm. And apparently they gave me a little bit of trouble leading the two of them. They didn't want to go across it. And I got them both across. And when I got them across, uh, the lady was following me in the, in the Suzuki and um, she was shutting the gate so the cattle didn't come across the bridge. Mm-hmm. And when she turned around, the horses weren't there anymore and I was on the ground um, having a seizure. What? So um, she didn't actually see what happened, and they knew I had a head injury, um, but what they didn't know is whether I had a seizure, you know, that caused a head injury, yeah. or I had a head, head injury that caused a seizure, and, and um, you know, I was, I was sort of, yeah, unconscious, not re- non-responsive. Um, the ambulance came, they picked me up, they, they took me to the local Harvey Hospital, and from there, they um, airlifted me to to Perth, where um, the major hospital in Perth, where they 
specialise in, in brain injuries and um, put me in induced coma and, and found that I had some bleeding in the brain and some swelling and, um, you know, kept me there. And then they started to observe me to, to check to see if I was um, actually indeed had epilepsy and, yeah, went through the testing and, and that was, was, was really tough for me. At that point, you know, I think I was uh, very maybe 19, 20, 21, somewhere in that in that age group and um they uh yeah it was sort of the first time that you realize you're not bulletproof you know they, they, yeah. they, they told my parents to expect the worst that there's a good chance that i wasn't going to pull through at one point and, you know and then if i did they were say saying that you know i might not be the same and, you know i could, could have some brain damage and yeah it was, it was pretty scary for them and at what point did the reality set in? Like, I know that you said that the nurses were telling you that you'd had an accident and then you've realised, yes, you are in the hospital. But had reality set in at that stage? No, and a great, great question too because it was exactly the opposite for me. At that point, I was just like, well, they were all telling me how serious it was and I, and I didn't want to believe them. So I was just like, no, no, I'm 100% right and, and I just wanted to get back to work and they they did this um, and my family started coming in and everybody was seeing me in Pia. Um, she was doing uh, vet prep at the Perth Zoo and so she was coming in as much as she could and, and, and I was in hospital. I couldn't even tell you how many days but I just wanted to get out but they wanted to keep me in there for observation and then also I had to do the, the test the epilepsy and 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 one of those was, was pretty hard. They they have you strap they they strap your head down and they put this um, uh, strobe light literally you know, inches from your eyes and they're just trying to trigger a reaction. Oh and yeah. And it was just like torture. And they see and I remember at one point because you can't look away because your head was like in this head vice grip. And um, I remember one point I couldn't stand it and I closed my eyes and, and the nurse just said to me, she said, look, I know it's tough, but you've got to do it because it's just going to take longer. You know, we, we've got to get through it. So you need to open your eyes. And it's like your natural reaction, though, to look away or to, to close your eyes. Yeah, well, you want, I wanted to look away and then you can't. So then the, the obviously only other response you have is to close your eyes. So then I went through the testing and they wanted to keep me there and I was fighting and I wanted to leave. Um, so we end up talking to the nurses and my dad and that, at that point sort of explained that, you know, he's a country kid and he doesn't, doesn't want to be here. And, and um, I, had not, I had to sort of tick off some um, boxes to be able to go. Yeah. But I didn't want to tell him. I was actually struggling a fair bit. I, I couldn't really remember stuff. And then I wasn't – I didn't have any balance. I remember the nurse was walking me to one of my appointments in the hospital and she seemed to be walking fast. I couldn't keep up and I was holding the wall, trying to walk and follow her, holding the wall, but I didn't want her to know. But I didn't want to tell her to slow down because I wanted to get out of there. And so I was holding this wall and she was just seemed to be getting further away from me and I was really, that's why I remember it, so paranoid she's going to see me, struggling and say, you're not going anywhere. Mm. And I got there and did the test and, and then um, they, wouldn't, they, they couldn't give me the epilepsy test Result, I had to. That my dad sort of um, had to take responsibility for me and, and, and say I wouldn't drive and, and I'd have to wait until you know, the test came. And then he picked me up and he, he took time off work 
um, to look after me. And um, and I remember when he rolled the car around the front, I met him at the front of the hospital. And it was just little simple things that you sort of, your muscle memory or, or you, you, the way your brain's wired. But I was looking at the car and the doors asked me to get in and I, I didn't know how to get into the car. <laughs> I was like, how do you fit in the car? Like you're looking at the shape and you're like, I'm standing up. And I was just, I was just mesmerised and standing there, and I didn't want to say anything again because I didn't want anyone to be worried. Oh my god! I actually didn't know. I couldn't remember how to bend down and sit in the car. Did your dad have any of, idea? No, I didn't tell anyone. I actually got back on a horse um, oh, when I got damn. back home, a breaker, because I just wanted to get going again. And and it actually hit me sometime. It was like a few, like dad had already left, and I already got the results for the epilepsy and all the rest of it. And I was sort of back to work. And um, I was actually in the shower, I remember, after having a long day shoeing. And I actually, um, and not too many people know this, and, and I, don't, I haven't said it anywhere else, I can't remember. Maybe Piers about the only one who knows. But then I, I was in the shower and I just broke down crying in there because at that first point I realised that I could have died. And, and it wasn't crying because I could have died. I just started realising that people around me could die. I had nobody, you know, my parents were living and, um, my, I only had one grandparent, my nana, that was alive, but the others had all passed away before I was born. And, you know, I was worried, like, Pierre could, what happens if Pierre died or, you know, family? And I just, like, got overwhelmed. Oh, all my of a gosh. sudden, that, I'm, I was my first time that I was just, like, I was just oblivious to death almost. And, and it hit me that accidents can happen. And, and I didn't even know how this accident happened. Where it could have, it, you know, and my life could have been, you know, so, so much different, or, or my family certainly. All of a sudden, life felt very vulnerable. Yeah, and and it and it hit me like a ton of bricks, and, and so that was probably, um, and yeah, I, just from my memory of it, it was a, a few weeks after the accident that, that that sort of sunk in, and and I probably slowed down a little bit, and also reflected on on how stupid. Um, I'd been by by putting myself at risk afterwards, trying to ignore the fact. Like I would tell Peter, he was the only one again that knew. Like I tell Peter the same story all the time, and and she would say to me, "Look, you've already told me this story, and I'm happy to listen to it again. But do you want me to start telling you when you're repeating yourself? Because I was doing it all the time. I still had um, you know short term memory loss, and uh, and and that was affecting me. So Dan, how long did this go on for? Like what did recovery look like? And was there ever a point you thought, oh, crap, I probably actually should have stayed in hospital? Um, I, was, I, I think I was just fortunate that I got back going. It all seemed pretty quick. Like, I think it was maybe a month, you know, um, I reckon I was probably all recovered. But certainly, yeah, I, I shouldn't have been silly to go riding and shooting horses again and driving and, and doing things like that. You know, you know, when you're that age and you're working pretty hard, I was – you drive, you'd go and see Pierre or she'd come and see you. You'd be driving at night. And You're unbreakable. Sort of stuff. You just think, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and then you're still working hard and whatever. You just, it's just, um, yeah, it's just probably, it's probably all of those things that I was fortunate enough that, that nothing happened, but um, really more luck than good management. Although on the flip side of the coin, it was probably the determination to not lay down and just wallow, you know, that theory of I'm not going to let this down, I've got to get on, I've got to get on with my life and I'm going to do it now, probably actually got you through some of the hardest times. Yeah, absolutely. It was just, if anything, just being bloody probably ignorant to the fact of, of what could have of really Of the real dangers, and, yeah. 
and and then from that you just yeah you just just go I, I don't I do you had so many goals I had so many goals at that point and and you had a plan that you're like this could stuff my plan up I wanted to get I wanted to make sure it didn't by by pushing it really hard really quickly and get, getting back to as normal as possible and and, and have and keep that drive you know we, we had both here and I've got a lot of drive and, and so yeah we, we just went to full ball I probably should have you know, been talking. You know, if it was uh, if that happened to, to to my own kids, I'd really hope that yeah, exactly. You know, we had better support for them. Isn't that funny when we we become parents, everything's put into perspective a bit. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. From the saddle, from the saddle. Here at from the saddle, we love movers and shakers, especially when they're from rural Australia. Picture this. A few ringers sitting around a campfire in the Kimberley after a hard day in the yards, frustrated by a lack of durability and quality in their clothing. Determined to do something about it, they decided to fix the problem themselves. From back then in 2012 to today, the Ringers Western Range has expanded to meet every dress need from dusty cattle yards to corporate boardrooms and everything in between. Ringers Western sticking together. From the saddle. From the saddle. Right, right, let's fast forward. How did you meet and when did you meet Dan James? Well, it was really about the same time, to be honest, just a bit before that accident. So um, when I had that accident, so Dan had come from the Kimberleys and he started coming to camp drafts, wanting to camp draft. And Peter and I were camp drafting and, and we're camp drafting at that point quite successfully, like, I think um, that year that we met Dan, he finished like open rider and I was reserve champion open rider. And and, um, and so, yeah, Dan came to a camp draft and, you know, we we're, were obviously around the same age, we had the same name and and um, and, and he liked the way that our horses went. And so he asked if, if we could start giving him some tuition on camp drafting because, you know, and you probably would know this, but a lot of the, the guys that, you know, chase cattle for a living, they think this camp drafting business is pretty easy <laughs> because that's all they do. And so he went to a camp draft thinking he's just going to clean up. This is, <laughs> he does, he does this, you know, from Monday to Friday every week. And, um, and yeah, and when he got there, he couldn't put a cow around a course to save himself and realised it was a bit harder than he thought. So he started coming for some lessons and and at that point there I sort of explained to him, you know, I used to sort of do a bit of a, you know, liberty stuff as well and had a bit of a, a you know, trick horses and, and we become pretty good friends. And in somewhere in that timeline, um, that's when I had my accident. And Dan was actually doing a big show. But Dan had offered me some tickets to this show and that was one of the things when I woke up from this coma, it was getting pretty close to the show, and uh, and I was I was you know telling everybody, hey, we got to must have been like the next weekend or something. I'm like, hey, we got to get the show as well, and and they're like, we'll just see how you're going, we'll see how you are, and I'm trying to pump the brakes, and and uh, and I I caught up with Dan again at that show, and he was he was actually more surprised to seen him than uh, than anyone else was because he he'd heard about the accident and how severe it was and thought that I should still be in hospital and and there I was was at one of the big stadiums in Perth and and then done this big horse show and from there it led into him getting a job offer to essentially become a full time entertainer at what we call El Cabello Resort 
which some of the listeners might might have remembered, El Cabello, Blanco. They had a, um, it was sort of like a, a restaurant. Uh, it was sort of like an Outback Spectacular, you know, probably 30, 40 years ago that was all Andalusians and Spanish themed. Yep. And it was sort of dinner in a show and it was a resort, you know, it was a bit of a theme park. And so when they saw Dan James perform uh, what they called the Spirit of the Horse, they had offered him a job to put together an Australian show like Outback Spectacular and their theory was they'd have a Spanish show one day, Australian show the next, and then maybe another show that incorporated a bit of both. So he had to get a team together and that's when he came up with the idea of, of bringing me involved and, and, I, and I was actually quite against it, to be honest. And um, I, I sort of had my own agenda. Pierre and I, like Pierre was, was at that stage in a last year of, of university becoming a vet. I was a, a, now a certified farrier and um, and I was going to be a part-time farrier, part-time horse trainer and she was going to be a full-time vet and you know, eventually buy property and, and, and do our own thing. And, and he's trying to convince me to, to leave that and that and that property I was still managing that ten thousand acres and uh, he, he was trying to convince me to leave all that and start um, this show at, at um, El Cabello. So did you leave? <laughs> yes, well I did, <laughs> but un- unwillingly in the fact that um, he, he kept pestering me about it and um, and I just fobbed him off. I would never say like a hard no, but I just certainly didn't show any interest, hoping it would just go away. And um, he um, then asked me to come and uh, look at a horse that he purchased, and he said it had it had bad feet, and he wanted me to have a look at it and just tell him what he needed to do because he would chew his own horses. And um, I, I drove up there, and I looked at this horse, and I told him what I'd do. And then he said to me, he said, "Oh well, let's um, go to the resort or go to the restaurant at the resort, and he'll shout me some lunch." So we go down to the, the resort and we have a counter meal at the bar there. And while we're sitting there having our meal, the owner of the establishment comes up and, and Dan introduces me. He sits down with us and he starts asking me a bunch of questions about myself and what I do. And, and, and I'm just thinking this guy's just like really friendly and he's really interested. And so I'm sitting there just answering him. And, and at one point he interrupts me quite abruptly and he says to me, he says, well, you sound like you're too busy to come and work for me. <laughs> and at that point there, I just realized Dan James had tricked me into a job interview. No. And, and yeah, and he's done now. When I, I didn't know Dan that well then, um, <laughs> but I know him very well now. And I, it doesn't surprise me now, but I was shocked at the point. And old mate had to go for another, like I said, he's a property developer. He's getting this resort up and going. As you can appreciate, he's quite a busy person. And so he said, I've got, to, I've got to go to another meeting. And um, and then uh, he said, you just put down on paper, send me an email of, you know, the terms that you, that you would need to to take this job. And um, he said, we'll see if we can work something out. And so that was probably the carrot. Once he dangled that, that carrot, which was, you know, I could do it on my terms, um, it was sort of an opportunity too good to be true. So... What did Piers' family think of this, seeing as though, you know, you guys were starting to settle into a different lifestyle? I think at the time, because it was all still in WA, um, it was okay. And it wasn't until 
then got the idea that we needed to go east, that it became a lot more real. And I was trying to pump the brakes on it then. Dan was like, we've got to go, you know, to the east coast and, um, you know, set up over there. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, we can do that, but let's just, you know, get better here first. And um, we were both performing at Perth Royal and uh, Sydney Royal were on the scout and they'd seen us at, at Perth. And they um, asked us to come over to do Sydney Royal. And when they did that, um, when we used to do like a show quote, or well, we still do pretty much the same way, you know, you have your daily performance fee, but then you'd also have to account for travel. Yeah. And so when we put it together, so we were doing travel from WA or Perth to Sydney and Sydney back again. Um, the bill, the travel bill was outweighed the performance by by a long shot, yeah. and we thought they'd never go for it, and um, they did. They took the quote, and then when Dan saw that, he said to me then, he's like, hey, have a look at this. This is enough money for us to go across there and set, set ourselves up and, and, and make a go of it, and um, that's what he wanted to do, and that was probably the hard point there because then I did want to do it, and then PR – you know, we're reluctant to you know, have to leave a job, but she also sort of could see there's an adventure there. And that was probably when the family was like, okay, all right, you're going to do this for a year or so, okay. And then you'll come back and even her, her work, you know, um, she had to resign, but they pretty much said to her that when she came back, that that should that still have a job for her and everybody around the district, you know, also, you know, shooting horses and training horses, you'd be able to pick up where you left off. So um, we, we sort of left thinking that it was a short-term adventure that, you know, eventually, you know, people wouldn't, you know, want to hire us and we would just come home. So, Dan, did things snowball after that? Yeah, Sydney was, was a launching pad and um, and we had, I think we had three shows booked when we left WA. Um, at the time we actually did Sydney, um, Melbourne Royal booked us, Adelaide Royal booked us, you know, several ag, little ag shows, town ag shows booked us, and we started to get a little bit of momentum. The biggest gig is the 2010 World Equestrian Games at Lexington in Kentucky. How did you land that? I'm very pessimistic when it comes to it. That sort of stuff, he's optimistic if you yep. sort of being able to pick up on that already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, so Dan's telling me, oh, mate, we've got, we've got a shot, you know, and we've got a shot. But also he would say that about a lot of things that would never come off because, like you said, he's ambitious. He's a dreamer. And so I, I never thought it would really happen, but I was supportive and, you know, we'd have to get material and send it over and, you know, emails would go backwards and forwards and all that sort of business. And uh, eventually, it got more and more promising, and it was going to happen. And we got the gig to do it, but then we really had no horses there, no finance, you know, nothing to actually enable us to do it. Then, then we sort of saved, begged, borrowed, and steal, stole, I should say, and and um, got sponsorship and all sorts of stuff, and and we went across there. For um for three months to to train these two horses to then perform in the opening ceremony and that was in front of thirty thousand people um, live and then it was broadcasted uh, around the world to millions of people like Europe like the World Equestrian Games for horses just for the listeners it's it's bigger than the Olympics for, for them yeah. you know like 
if they get a gold medal in the World Equestrian Games, it's it's rated higher than getting a gold medal in the Olympics. So it, it's just crazy. So for us to be there and these couple of little Australian blokes, like Guy McLean had left Australia, taken his, his actual four horses over there and was, you know, trying to make a name for himself as an entertainer. He was trying to get into that show from the moment that he left Australia and they they, they you know, didn't want to have anybody that they didn't know. And so he couldn't get the gig or anything. And there we are, we landed this gig without even having horses. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so you fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So then absolutely. we did the opening and then there were 16 days of demonstrations um, and they broke them up into lots of four. So there was, um, you know, you, you might be there for four days, someone might be there for eight days, 12 days, and there's only a few people that had the full 16. And um, and we were fortunate enough that because we did the opening ceremony, they let us have 16 days of demonstrations, and, and we were demonstrating alongside Pat Pirelli and Clinton Anderson and John Lyons and these big-time clinicians. Can you remember how you felt? Like, what was going through your head at this point? Just in awe, and um, and it's real. Like there's so many because there's even we just had issues even getting that shot, getting to that show because they they have the horses had to be shipped from Canada, and then they have to have all these health papers, and the, the horses had to do have the same sort of health requirements as the um, competition horses. Yeah, and um, paperwork's not Dan James's strong suit. And so he, he had missed something and they were starting to threaten us that they weren't going to allow these horses to come on site. Mm-hmm. So that became, and this is why we're, we were actually there for, you know, leading up to the to the World Equestrian Games. And, and so, you know, we're dealing with all these issues that are popping up as well as finance, you know, how we're going to fund it and, you know, we're living on a budget and, and uh, it, it was pretty hectic and stressful. Did it test the friendship? Um. Well, only because at that point, Dan had got an American girlfriend who was quite religious and had him not drinking. And so Dan became very unsocial and hard to deal with because of he was just a different person. He's normally <laughs> like such a social outgoing person. But he was more under the thumb. Well, you picture anybody that you know who's under the thumb, times that probably by a thousand. And that's what Dan James was like at the time. Like, He's never done it since and he's never done it before, but he was just like a different person. So did the show go off without a hitch? Luckily it did. And these were two new Liberty horses. And and one of the things that – so when you do your Liberty stuff and you actually – you'd rather the horse – it's a bit like breaking in a horse. You'd actually rather see him buck when you saddle him up than not buck at all. Then you go to riding and then he bucks. (laughs) So you think if he bucks when you saddle him up, he's got his buck out. Is that you go back, or at least you've seen how he reacts and whatever and yeah, da, da. But I'm always a bit cautious of the ones that don't buck at all. And a lot of times the ones that don't buck at all, they, they, they never do buck. They have no buck. But, but if they do buck, it's generally really big. And so our Liberty horses hadn't actually run off in any of the rehearsals. They had never run off. They'd stayed with us. They, they, they'd just been absolute saints. And then on the very last rehearsal, on the very last day, they decide to gallop off and go and explore the whole arena. And now this arena is open, so it's not a fully closed off arena the way that they set it up. There was two, that Tommy Turvey who had come over to, to Perth that Dan did the show with. He also was in the show with two Liberty horses on the other side of the arena. So there was, you know, our horses could have run to his horses, his horses could have run to our horses. 
They were also doing trick roping in the middle, and they had other things going on to fill the arena at that point. So, you know, it was just it was just a stressful show that to be a part of, let alone with horses that actually hadn't performed at Liberty before. And so that that day, that was when the nerves sunk in that this is now we we don't have any time to correct them. If they did this on the first day, that would have been better. And now it's going into the show, we've just got to pray that that was a one-off. And so that's what we're really nervous about. And that night, luckily for us, they stayed on task. You know, probably a little overwhelmed because there was so much atmosphere that that made them probably stay with us a little bit better. And uh, yeah, we pulled it off, and and it was one of the probably at that point one of the greatest feelings you know, of our short career. Yeah. So that was a massive career high. There were some serious lows. Three weeks on the road, two broken trucks and one almost busted friendship and a swallowed toothpick. Yes. I'll, I'll try to tell it in short because I know my stories can, can drag on a little bit. We, this was just before World Equestrian Games. We had taken a show to do at Tully and a show to do at Charters Towers. And again, it was one of those shows for us. We were living near Newcastle, so there was a lot of travel. Yeah. And, um, and we're going to use all that money um, from those two shows was going in the bank to, you know, help fund this American trip. Yes. And uh, and and so Dan, Dan had a, a little Iveco daily and, a, and like a three or a four-horse gooseneck, and then I had like an eight-horse truck. And um, so a lot of times if we took a lot of horses to the shows, I would take my truck. Sometimes we'd t- take both vehicles. But this one we decided to take the Iveco daily because it would be cheaper on the fuel. We can use that money in the States. And we'll only take two horses, both our stallions, so we'll do the show just with those and, um, and you know, save on, on money and not bring anyone with us. It was just going to be him and I. So, again, save on money. So he gets the Iveco, and it was still like a new car, like it was under warranty. He gets this thing serviced, ready for the long haul. We get going, and we decide to leave, like, maybe the day before we're going to leave just to get on the road and get some miles done. And we get on the road and we'll, we'll get going. We are an hour or two down the road and this like car starts surging a little bit and the electronics start playing up and lights start flashing and he's like, this isn't good. So he um, rings up the mob that, that serviced it and asked them if they found anything, what was what, what what's happening. Uh, um, they said to pull into Coffs Harbour and get them to look at it. So by the time we get to cost, it's night time. We we stay at the showgrounds. Um, we then take the vehicle in in the morning for them to look at, and they had a look at it. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. They replaced the turbo, you know, did some stuff, kept it all day, gave it back to us, and said, "That no, you're right to go." We started driving it, and we're heading north again. We just get out of Grafton a little ways uh, on it, sorry, Grafton Coffs Harbour, and um, it starts playing up again. So we ring them, coughs up. They say, oh, look, it might be just working through some stuff. Keep driving it. If you get to the Gold Coast and it's still playing up, then there's another dealership there. So it still plays up the whole way. We stop at um, the Gold Coast. We camp at Outback Spectacular. We take the Veco in. They don't know what's wrong with that. They said to keep going to Gimpy. They're a specialist. So we take it through to Gimpy. It's playing up, but it's still driving. We get to Gimpy, and we can't go any further from Gimpy. Like, there's no other dealerships that are going to deal with it between there and Tully. 
So Dan's like, this thing's got to be right for us to go, right? And, and now we're losing time. Like we're getting to the point that we needed them to fix it that night to be on the road that day to make it in time for the Tully show. They can't figure out what's wrong with it. But that first night that we're there, we end up finding somewhere for our horses to stay. We're staying in the goose neck, and the goose neck's only tiny. So he's got the bed, and I've got the swag, you know, out the, outside. And, and so, you know, it's like already a little bit sort of testy with being <laughs> on the road, this vehicle's playing up. We go to the um, local roadhouse there to have dinner, and we're not really saying too many words to each other just because, you know, what are you going to talk about at this point? And we eat dinner. I think we get in the car, and we're not talking. Again, he drives around the back, and he'd taken a, a toothpick after his meal, and he had it in his mouth, and he hits this pothole in the car park. <sighs> He swallows this toothpick <laughs> sideways. Now, I don't know this. He just stops and he's like hugging the steering wheel and he's silent. And I'm like looking at him going, Dan, what's wrong? Are you okay? What's wrong? What's happened? Are you okay? And I can't get an answer out of him. He's not saying anything. And I'm like, what's wrong, mate? Was, you got, are you okay? Can you tell me what's wrong? Are you all right? And I'm just like in – and then he puts his hand up to me to like just say like, wait, like, you know, yeah, just one minute. stop. Yeah. And – and then he swallows his toothpick and he tells, he tells me, he's like, because at that point he's staying quiet and he's surrendering to this toothpick because he doesn't know what to do. Like he's just, it's stuck at that point when he was being silent. <laughs> and anyway, Pia being a vet, he tells me, ring Pia. He said, she'll know what to do. <laughs> so I ring Pia and he's saying, should I go to the hospital? And Pia's like, well, he swallowed it, right? And he's like, yeah, but I can still, I can still feel it in my throat. And, and and she said, well, it's probably scratched you on the way down and that's what you can feel. And he said, if you have swallowed it, you wouldn't have swallowed it sideways. It must have got dislodged and gone into your stomach. And she said, it'll be fine. Like, you're going to be fine. And he, he reckons he didn't go to the toilet for two days after that. He was so scared to go to the toilet because <laughs> oh he thought God. this thing might come out sideways. <laughs> and he, reckons, <laughs> he reckons he was so paranoid and he reckons he didn't sleep a wink that night. Oh, that is insane. Insane. So it, did, it, did light, it did lighten the mood a little bit and, and then try to cut a long story short. They never fixed the Iveco. We missed Tully show, so we lost the income from the Tully show. Then we had the Charter Towers show. We thought, we're not going to miss that. We talked the Iveco dealership into giving us – they had like a demo truck with a, with a, with a cattle crate on the back. Yeah. We said, give us that, and you guys um, can have the Iveco until you fix it, and um, let us go and do this show. And there was a huge, big, rigid, heavy body truck um, that it was as rough as guts because it had no weight in it. We had yeah. two horses get bounced around. Uh, all that gear got destroyed in it. We had audio gear. It just oh, got bounced around. No. We turned up to Charters Towers. It was just. It was just terrible. We'd go up there to do the show. We do the show. We travel back. And on the way back, the um, and we didn't know what it was, but the, but essentially a truck broke down and it stopped us being able to drive it over sort of 60 kilometres an hour. And what it ended up being was because those roads were so rough on that truck, it broke the speed limiter sensor. And when the speed limiter sensor thinks somebody's tampered with it, the truck goes into this safety mode ah, and it doesn't yes. let the vehicle go over. So you had to keep it at about 55 kilometres yep. an hour 
and we had to do that, but essentially from Charters Towers to Gympie to get this truck back. So you can imagine again, and I couldn't drive that truck. I only have a license for medium Richard, and Dan had the he had a full license, and so he had to do all the driving, and um, and then we had to organise our flights. I think I postponed my flight to America, and I had to drop Dan off in Brisbane so he could still make his flight to get to the States to start training those horses for World Equestrian Games. And that's the stuff that people don't realise. They always just think, you know, I actually have people think that we don't even travel, like we just fly to the shows and somebody else travels our horses there. Oh, of course. that, That was so famous that we don't need to worry about transportation. But um, it's far from the truth. It's funny that, you know, people will often see the fame and fortune and can be totally misled and misunderstand just exactly what it takes to have a career like you do and the time, the dedication, the stress, the tears, the fears, it all happens and when it rains, it pours. Yeah, for us, we were so fortunate that it was like the timing of it, that we were young enough um, probably naive enough to do it that we didn't have uh, a whole lot of commitments and we were really brave and, and that's what I put it down to like you know some of the risks we took and and you know some of the positions we put ourselves in and you know the whole timeline and storyline I just think if, if if you put that to me now to try and do uh, at, at where I am at, at this stage of my life there's, there's no way I'd be brave enough to do it absolutely that is one hell of a journey, Dan. I've got to hand it to you. Mate, we are at a time for today, but I do thank you for sharing that with us. But before you go, what's one piece of advice for people working with horses? Oh, that's, that's a tough one. One piece of advice. Um, for me, the only bit of advice if I ever give it to, to people that say want to become professional in the industry, I'd always say, if I can talk you out of it, don't do it. Yeah, good stuff. All right, Dan, thank you so much. And I won't hold you up for much longer. Um, we do we do thank you for your time today. Not my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you to our episode sponsor, Ringers Western. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, the founder and co-host of From the Saddle. I started this podcast a year and a half ago because I knew important stories from rural Australia weren't being told. We hear stories of triumph and tenacity, heartache and loss from rodeo riders, outback ringers, cattle traders, bronze sculptors and more. From the Saddle is an independent podcast. It's just us telling stories that matter to our community and we are so stoked that nearly 100,000 people have joined us for the ride. We're looking for partners this season to help tell these stories because we think they're worthy of being told. They're a part of our history and possibly our future. If you're interested, we'd love to hear from you.